Welcome to The Wonder, exploring perspectives, rituals, and observances of modern naturalistic, earth-revering, pagan religious paths. Here are your hosts, Yucca and Mark. Welcome back to The Wonder, science-based paganism. I'm one of your hosts, Yucca. And I'm the other one, Mark. And today we are talking about imagination, fantasy, and ritual. Right. Yeah, and we thought this was a a lovely time to talk about it because for many people, we're just coming out of or still really in a season of that's that we associate with new beginnings, with planning, with with planting those seeds for the for the year to come. Mm-hmm. Right, because in many places like yours, Yucca the ground is frozen and there's not a whole lot that you can be doing towards making something new grow for the rest for the the coming year other than to think about it and Mm -hmm. imagine the future and plan and and plan you know based on your imagined picture of that future then you can plan the steps to get there right and that is really the human special trick Mm mm-hmm of all of all i mean we talk about our thumbs and they're great but of all the things that humans are particularly capable of and adept at it's our ability to envision the imagined and that Mm -hmm. includes the imagined future right and what that means is that we have become creatures who are built around storytelling there was an anthropologist, I don't remember his name, who, who actually called us homo something, I don't remember what it was, which meant the storytelling ape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Because that's what we do. Whatever, whatever culture you look at, wherever in the world, we're all telling stories. And we start that at a very, very young age. Mm-hmm even before we're, we've really figured out the grammar of our mother language, we're telling stories, we're playing. And that's, you know, when you look at, at mammals, mammals play mm-hmm. and they play at whatever it is that they need to learn to succeed and survive as an adult. So you look at the little lion cubs and they're wrestling with each other and chasing each other and grabbing each other's tails. Well, humans, yeah, we run around and rough and tumble, but we play make-believe from right. very, very early on. You know, we're picking up the sock and, you know, the feather and their characters in our minds. And they have incredible stories and personalities and interactions and, and all of that. And, and so that's what we really do. And that's, that's, what, that's part of what makes us successful as a species and as individuals in our species is our ability to tell those stories, imagine, and to share those stories. Yes, exactly. And what this tells us, of course, is because this is happening at such an early age, is that this really is baked into us. This is, you know, something that comes in at a very low level of our development. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's essential to us you know, our ability to understand the idea of causality, of action and consequence Mm -hmm. is, you know, and 
that things happen along a timeline, right? That there are there are actors and those actors do things and those things have consequences. And so there's a result and that that's the order that things happen. All of those are things that we have to learn, but we get them really early. Yeah. And one of the things about our capacity for imagination is that our brains are not really built to distinguish the imagined from the real. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the great paradox with memory, of course. <laughs> because memories get edited all the time. You know, they, they, every time we retell a story to ourselves, things get a little fuzzy around the edges and we just touch them up, right? Just fill that in, yeah. Yeah, just, you know, because you want the memory to be complete. It is not a volitional activity. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not about being dishonest. It's the way our brains work. Yeah, and it's um, it's not really a conscious thing that we're doing. No. that's It's no. not like you're choosing, usually, you're usually not choosing to modify that memory, but, you know, you're just filling the details in. Right, right. It's like with our vision. You you can actually see this. If you take your finger out, put it all the way to the edge of your vision, your peripheral vision, and slowly move your finger into the in the front of your vision, you're going to find that you've got some blind spots. But we don't notice those blind spots. Our brain just fills it in for us, unless mm-hmm. you're really, really looking for that blind spot. Right. Yeah. And that, of course, is caused by the place where the optic nerve connects with the retina. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have any light sensing cells over it. There is an actual hole in our vision and our brains. um, Well, they do two things. They fill in that hole to start with. And then they flip the whole thing upside down because our eyes actually project the lens in our eyes projects an upside down image onto the retina at the back of the eye. Right. Just like a telescope. Right. Right. It works the same way as your refractor. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, our brains are doing a lot of stuff to massage our experience. Right. And this is something that we talk about a lot in non-theist paganism in terms of understanding supposedly supernatural experiences. Mm -hmm. Right. Because in every case, with every experience we have, there is the the perception, and then there's the story we develop to explain the perception. Right. And the story, we actually have some choices about. The perception, our brain just does what it does. And frequently yeah. it's trying to fill in very poor data. Mm-hmm. So we hear things that weren't, that sound didn't actually come into our ears to create, or we see things that aren't created. My favorite example, I've used this before, is when you're driving on the highway and there's a sign for an exit far, far down the road. And you can read it barely. You can see, you know, what road it is that that is the exit for. And as you get about halfway closer, those letters all rearrange themselves into what it actually says. (laughs) Because your brain was trying to make sense out of the sign and it gave you one determination. And the truth is it was something else. Yeah. So the, our, our minds are incredibly powerful in how they can 
develop imagination in order to fill in the holes of what we perceive. Right. Right. Another example is when you somebody says something to you and you didn't really quite catch it and you hear something that's completely different than what they said and you know you have to say wait what did you say because what I heard definitely was not what you said and then they say it again and you can oh then then it makes sense right Right. but we just fill it in we hear something that's not really there right yeah and that in my opinion, is where a lot of experiences of the supernatural come from. Mm-hmm. It's uh, ephemeral data that the brain fills in, and then it develops a story that this isn't a supernatural experience. Okay. Other people have different opinions about that, but it seems to me, given what we know about the brain and about the universe, it's a lot more likely than the supernatural explanations that are often presented by people. Right. That's what I suspect as well. Yeah. So, so this is, oh, continue. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, this is a little bit about the, the, some of the whys we have this powerful imagination, but once we, we know and acknowledge that about ourselves, we can do so much with it and it can be a really empowering and just fun and delightful thing. Right which is why we love to read fiction. It's why we love to watch movies and, you know, television presentations and all that Play kind of stuff. Because, and, yeah. yeah, we love our stories and we, we love, you know, waiting to find out what happens at the end because we know that something will happen at the end and we're, we're, we're interested in what that is. So, Yes, playing with our imaginations becomes something that we do from a very, very early age. And the only real, the only real bucket that we have in our minds that helps us to see what is likely not likely to be a fantasy rather than a reality mm-hmm. is that category of things that we see as happening in the future. Mm-hmm. Because we know we're not there yet. We know that we can't see the future right? Mm -hmm. Most of us know that we can't see the future. So there are those imagined outcomes, and then we can plan for those or plan against them, depending on what we're imagining. Mm -hmm. Although I'm just going to say, when you're driving on the road, and you see something on the side of the road, and you don't want to hit it, don't keep focusing on it, because you will drive into it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So focus on what you where you want to go, instead of where you don't. And with my experience, you can apply that to, to planning as well. Instead of trying to plan against something, it's, it's often much more effective to plan towards something. Yes. Yes. When I was first learning to drive, the guy who was teaching me said, okay, now look where you want to go and go there. Yeah. That was, it was a very simple instruction and it taught me to steer. That yeah. was it. Look where you want to <laughs> go and go there. Yep. Do not look at the pedestrian. Do not look at the pedestrian. No. Yeah. Yeah. So we have this powerful imagination and it's so powerful that it can blur the distinction between what our real experiences are, which as we've said, can be heavily massaged and, and changed by our brains. Right. Mm -hmm. And just filling in that lack of lack of data. Right. 
So even, even that is somewhat questionable, which is why the scientific method is so powerful, because it works to take that subjectivity out mm-hmm. of our conclusions about what's real. And then we have the imagined experiences, and those can be super vivid and wonderful. And that's why we, once again, like movies and you know reading and all that great kind of stuff. We can use this, and we're going to talk about this later on, we can use this in our pagan practice, in our ritual practice, Mm -hmm. because a ritual can be informed by a story, Mm -hmm. right? I'm going to do this, and that symbolizes this, and I'm going to do that, and it symbolizes that, and then this transformation will take place, and it will lead to this result at the end, and Either I will be changed or the world will be changed, depending on what you believe. And you can even create rituals that are built around mythological stories, right? I'm going to do the fool's journey. I'm going to do Persephone's descent or, or Inanna's descent, right? Mm-hmm. And I've, I've been to some rituals that are like that, and they can be incredibly powerful. The problem that we get into is where I talked about how we can blur the imagined and the real. Right. And that can lead to lots of problems. I, I, I mean, I believe that that's the fundamental issue with theism. Yeah. That it involves the, the blurring of reality with imagination in a yeah. way that draws erroneous conclusions. That's what I believe. Yeah. Well, and, and there's so many different directions to go with this, but one of the, the places where it can be really harmful is we start to create these narratives about groups, mm-hmm. about my group and that group and, you know, everything. They're the, you know, your scapegoat group where, you know, where you can start demonizing people just through the stories and the imagination you come up with, whatever the group is right? It's the other political party, or it's the, you know, whatever religion, or the opposite of your particular food dogma group, or the, you know, and you start to, to blur between, you know, what, what maybe is real, and what's kind of imagined, and, and what might have some seeds of truth that have been, been exaggerated, Mm and, and, and it's hard for us to then to peel that back and try and distinguish between them, especially when we start wrapping our own identity and our stories about ourselves and our own worth into all of that. Right, exactly so. And that brings us to the, the wonderful term confirmation bias. Right. Because all of us have a prejudice in favor of our own stories. We whether they're imaginary or whether they're based in some pretty solid factual information, we still, as we look out into the world, we will look for pieces of data that will reinforce what we already want to believe. Mm -hmm. And that is another piece of theism, I believe. Once you've decided that you're a theist and you have this idea, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm a Muslim, I'm I'm a follower of Zeus, then you you start filtering your experience of the world in order to be consistent with what that tells you 
with what that is supposed to look like, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very tricky. It's subtle stuff because the so much of what happens with our sensorium happens underneath the surface. It's the processing that the mind does and then shows you something on the screen. Right. Very and, challenging. And we need to be really clear that this is, this is a human thing, right? This is something that we all do and we can become more aware of it and be able to make choices about it. But it's, it's completely natural. This is just part mm -hmm. of how we work, how we're wired. Right. Right. This, this, uh, what's this concretion of different evolved systems that is our brain, you know, it wasn't engineered from the bottom up. <laughs> it's a, it's a series of evolutionary steps that are all glommed onto one another. And this is part of the result mm -hmm. is that, you know, we, we are really not very good at subjectively as a, a single indiv individual person detecting what's likely to be true and what's likely not to be true. We yeah. teach ourselves critical thinking in order to try to do a better job of that. Right. But the best system that we found so far for determining what really is likely to be true is the scientific method with peer review and Occam's razor. Yeah. And, um, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, I'm, you know, I'm not, someone who thinks that we really should be dictating, you know, what people's, what classes people should take. But, you know, if I had one <laughs> that I could say everybody has to take, it would be logic, mm -hmm. right? I think that it would make, so, it would help people so much as long as the instructor, you know, was a good instructor and understood it just to be aware of the different kinds of fallacies there are and, and how do you actually think through and, and challenge your own beliefs and and also how to argue how to argue on a position that's not yours yes yes so well that's why the the first atheopagan principle is skepticism and critical thinking yeah it's you know you start from there that 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 will help you to understand the world as well as a person can yeah so we have this imagination and we have this perceptual system, which gets monkeyed with by the brain a lot and may not be telling you exactly the truth. And then what you base, then you base a story on the experience that this brain process delivers you. So, so it's possible for things that are completely imagined to seem very, very real. Mm -hmm whether it's just that you're watching a movie and you're, you know, you're suspended, you're, you're completely submerged into the world of the film, or it can be something like your anxiety uh, at two in the morning. Yes. About terrible things that are likely to happen or a memory that I have of flying naked over the golden gate bridge. It was a perfect day. It was sunset, beautiful. Um, and for some reason I had no clothes on and I was standing at the bus stop at the Golden Gate Bridge and then rose into the air and flew over the towers, <laughs> did kind of a backflip. The air was perfectly warm. It was so comfortable. It was a beautiful experience. And it was a lucid dream that I had, but I mm -hmm. remember it as absolutely clearly as if it was a real experience. And I have no, there's no context within that 
memory except for the fact that impossible things happened to tell me that I didn't really have that experience. Yeah. So we have this. Mm-hmm. And that leads me to some of the ways that the pagan community has developed in relation to imagination and fantasy, starting really from Gerald Gardner, you know, mm-hmm. from the 1930s, because Gardner posited a fantasied story. And the fantasied story was that the witchcraft that he was presenting in his books was part of an unbroken lineage of lore handed down from time immemorial, at least from the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. And this created a sort of conflation of paganism, Middle Ages, Middle Ages paganism. Mm -hmm. And in the late 1960s, at least in the United States, what ended up happening was that Renaissance fairs got invented. And a lot of people that were performers and participants in Renaissance fairs were also pagans. And so this sort of aesthetic and this idea of this golden old age began to arise. Right. And the, the genre of fantasy was really taking off as well. Yes. Right? We, we have to name Lord of the Check Rings. Which, hey, huge fan here. Me too. Know, named from it even, you know, but, and, and other, you know, many, many other names. And it, it really became a, I think not just within the pagan community, but just in the, in the larger community, really a cultural force. Yes, very much so. And certainly from an aesthetic standpoint, it took, it really took over in many ways. Certainly in the 80s and 90s, pagan wear was medieval slash renaissance wear yeah you know what what people wore were you know flowing velvets and the long sleeves with the, the with the long you know bell-like yeah. sleeves and, and all the open that. v shirts with the little ties across right. them and yep. yeah yeah exactly so and and, and I adore all of this. You know, well, we're, I we're do not, too. Yeah, we're, this is not, <laughs> don't take this as us being like, oh, this is all terrible. No, we're just, you know, talking about it though and saying, you know, right. where it's from. Right. Yeah. And so this, this aesthetic of ye olde Englandy mm-hmm. became something that and became... sh- don't mention all the other places. <laughs> right. Sorry. Right. Yeah, Yeah. that's another topic that we could talk about, which is paganism outside of the sphere of England and English-speaking countries. Yeah. Right? Because, um, you know, not not everything is going to be practiced in a Wiccan kind of way. Yeah. Um, But... That's another topic. It's another topic. Either that or it's going to be the mother of all tangents and we're going to spend the rest (laughs) of our time on it so this this you know jolly old england kind of idea which had so much overlap with tolkien for example except that tolkien mixed in hobbits and elves and dwarves and wizards and all that kind of stuff became very very popular and to my mind unfortunately what some of what that has done is it has turned 
it has turned the imagination into what people want to make real in their mm -hmm. paganism. They want to be wizards. They, they want to be elves in some cases. They, mm -hmm. And, you know, aspiration towards a fantasy of something that's imaginary is inherently dissociative from the real world. And what our naturalistic paganism is about is the real world. You know, one of the quibbles that I've always had with the sort of mainstream pagan community in the United States, at least, where I'm familiar with it, is that it's got this weird kind of dual loyalty. It's like we revere the earth and then we have these gods. Yes, in the but earth, higher beings, right? You know, well, higher than what you're talking about, high, higher than the earth, you right? Know, not, yeah. Did the gods come from the earth? No, did the gods create the earth? Maybe there are all kinds of different stories, which I believe are imagined stories. Mm -hmm. But the, the question of exactly where does the earth fit into all of that is a real one, I think. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that people are saying that they revere the earth whatever that means to them. But to me, the earth is central. There's nothing yeah. more central because we are it. Mm -hmm. we, we are the earth standing up on legs and talking to itself. Right. The, really? I mean, think about that for a moment. We are little pieces of earth. Mm -hmm. Your whole body. Think about where's the carbon in your hands, the oxygen, the nitrogen, where's all of that from? Mm -hmm. And where is it going back? Right. And it's not like there's some amazing border where it's like you, you know, the carbon presents its passport and says, I'm going to be human now. It's just carbon. Yeah. <laughs> it's just carbon like any other carbon on earth, right? At least of that isotope. Yeah. So this is something that I think is, is problematic in the pagan community. <clears throat> and it's interesting because some different there have been a series of sort of aesthetic layers that have gone along with the pagan community. I saw the, the goth sort of BDSM aesthetic enter the community in the mid nineties. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of gotten folded into all that as well. So, yeah. The boundaries between them have really blurred between, you know, what is, and, and even if you go to like a, a Ren fair, that it's all there too. Right. right. Even within folks that that are into that, that aren't pagan, you know, that's, there's a lot of of mixing there. Yes. And yes, there's a lot of the the dress up is still. Reminiscent of some other age. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, I, I think this is problematic because it pulls us away from Earth. I love playing dress up. And I'm I'm happy to play dress up and I have done it in many, I mean, literally dozens of different kinds of ways because we used to do all these theme parties and mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um, and I was a performer at Renaissance fairs for many years as well. Uh, and Dickens fairs as well. Mm -hmm. So I don't have any problem with, you know, playing Let's Pretend. Mm -hmm. The challenge, I think, is when we lose track of the fact that we're playing Let's Pretend. Right. 
because there are, I think there are ways that we'll talk about this to, to do it in a way that it is inspiring. It speaks to us in this very, you know, deep level, the symbols, but what you're talking about is the, is the losing sight of, is this really real, right? Is this what's really happening versus what are we imagining? Mm -hmm. And we can, I think that we can definitely, one of the purposes of imagination is that we can work towards making that a reality. So we can, some of our imagined things can, can become reality, but there's also a difference between imagining things about other people and about mm -hmm. past stories, you know, as much as we want, we could, we reference Lord of the Rings. So as much as, as Gollum wants to believe that it was his birthday present, it, he can believe that and imagine that as all, as long as he wants. It's not, that's not what happened. Right. 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 And, you know, with the old ways, as much as we want to imagine and really want to believe that there's some unbroken path there, it's very unlikely that that's what happened. And, you know, we probably aren't star children put here from aliens and, right. you know, the path elf and all of that stuff. Right. And the, where was I going to go with this? With the connection between what is real and what is not and the earth being central that's where you were at before well right yeah this is a little different it's about suspension of disbelief mm -hmm. and one of the things that adults learn to do when their brains are developed enough is to try to make a differentiation between the imagined and the real right mm -hmm. and some people think that's a tragedy right that they lose their childish sense of you know, playfulness and imagination and everything can be just super magical, right? Mm -hmm. I don't feel that way. I, I think that our brains develop in the way they do for a reason. Mm -hmm. And when we start having to imagine futures that we need to plan for, being able to distinguish between the imaginary that we suspend our disbelief for and the real that we're working towards, even in the ineffectual way that we do because of the way our brains work, it's very important. Right. That way we don't set a goal of becoming an elf. Yeah. Right. Because that's not possible. Yeah. Now we, we could think about what are the characteristics that that embodies that we value and, you know, how can we work towards, you know, that sort of thing, but, but you're not actually going to be an elf. Right. 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 Yeah. Or you maybe, maybe more, a better example is you're not going to be a wizard. Yeah. Right. Because in the, in the fantasy sense, what a wizard is, is something that doesn't exist on planet earth. Mm -hmm. Now you can be, buried in the aesthetics of wizardry mm -hmm. you can can you know you can be talk. an incredible scholar right yes. wizards are often you know very learned individuals and right and you can make yourself look like a wizard and make all of your environs look like what you imagine a wizard's environs would look like but you're still not going to snap your fingers and have flame appear 
mm-hmm. you know, and to, to kid ourselves that those kinds of outcomes, the sort of Harry Potter magic, right? Mm-hmm. That, that those outcomes are actually possible in some way is to become further away from engagement with the world, the actual world that we're in here. Mm-hmm. And the kind of paganism that Yucca and I talk about here is really about immersion in this world, getting to know it better and better, you know, becoming familiar with what our local ecosystems are and really being in love with it because there's so much there to love. Getting, getting sidetracked on fantasies, it eats up bandwidth that could be applied to the love for the world. And that, I think, is critique that I have of a lot of mainstream paganism in the United States is that, and maybe in England, too, I don't know, but certainly, or, you know, in other English-speaking countries, but certainly in North America, Canada and Mexico and the U.S., that's, that seems to be what I'm seeing. Yeah. So let's talk a second about about using our imagination to create those story arcs where we begin as naturalist pagans is with a healthy suspension of disbelief, mm-hmm. right? And with, a, with an awareness that that's what we're doing. Right. right. Because what you're talking about, about the difference between with the, the children and adult brain and people talking about, oh, the, the, what a, a shame it is. I think that some of what they might be talking about is the ability to let go the way kids can let go. Yes. Right. And I think that's something that we don't need to leave, lose is being able to let go and go into that playful place. But we also have the ability to step back and be very critical and, and see the differences. But when we want to, we can suspend that belief. Right. right. Disbelief. Right. That's that's very well said. Because the the playfulness that you're describing, that that is something that our overculture really stomps on for adults. We've got all this conformity expectation around how we dress, around how we behave. That's why I love flash mobs. I love, I love, you know, people suddenly behaving, behaving in really unexpected ways that are delightful and, and creative and artistic. They're just super fun. Ritual is a way for adults to play. Well, or children too. Children can be involved in rituals, but, but adults, unless it's some formal sport or game, they, they don't get permission much to just go and play, Mm -hmm. you know? You take the afternoon off, go and play. Yeah. Um, and, and rituals enable us to do that around thematic storylines, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's, whether it's something from, from a myth, whether it's a story that, or, or simply a story of, I am powerful now. I am, I am, I am filled with my power. I have created a space where magic can occur and Mm -hmm. I'm going to go and do this thing. And it's going to help me to be 
much more effective at X, whatever X is. Yeah. Well, and even our, our, our stories and narratives of the seasons, right? That, mm-hmm. that is a story as well. And we understand it in, with the you know, narrative structure. Yes, it's true because the reality is every year is different. Yeah. Yeah. Every year is different. <laughs> the weather on any given day is not the same as it was last year. Weather is a chaotic system and it's never going to be predictable. And mm-hmm. all we can talk about is broad stroke generalizations about what is likely to happen mm-hmm. in the month of February as opposed to the month of August. Yeah. And we understand some of the drivers of that in terms of the axial mm-hmm. tilt and climate change and all of those things. But that doesn't make it predictable. So we have a story, a narrative about it instead that kind of guides us through, well, it's May, so we should be doing this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, again, as we were talking about in the beginning, that's just sort of how our, our, our minds are built is mm-hmm. to understand things as story, as, as a narrative. And then the imagination piece is, we, well, we get to build that story. Right. Right. So in our ritual, we're building those stories and, and it's very convenient in ritual that we do have the blur between what our, what our minds understand as true and not. Right. Because we can invoke an imagined scenario and affect real profound change in ourselves as people. Because we'll believe it. Right. And it's okay that we know that we made it up and we're believing it. But then it it really makes that change. I did a ritual at Pantheacon. God, it's got to be eight years ago now, something like that. And it was was specifically an Ethiopian ritual that happened after a presentation about Ethiopianism. And what the, the whole point of this, we... You know, we invoked a circle and we, we called qualities that we wanted to be with us of openness and uh, willingness to change and kindness and compassion. And the, the whole working of the, of the ritual was simply, I had a, a little vial of oil and I went from person to person anointing their forehead. But what I told them before I did that was, now what I want you to do is to call up that most cringeworthy, a shame, shame-filling moment <laughs> of your life. You know what it is. We all know what it yeah. is, right? You, you, you don't have to say anything about it, but we know what it is. The thing that you really wish you had never done, mm-hmm. right? And hold that forward in your mind and so all I did was I went from person to person and said it's forgotten it's over it's gone with each person and people cried right yeah because the story that they had been telling themselves about the bad thing that they'd done or the embarrassing thing that they'd done or whatever it was the story had a new ending right the story was given a new ending that absolved them of the feelings of shame or embarrassment or whatever it was. And I mean, I, I didn't realize it was going to be as powerful as it was, 
but I wanted I wanted to do something that was very personal work to really illustrate the power of doing ritual like that without invoking gods, without believing in magic, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that we can do with rituals and story narratives. People, people are filled with stories. They're filled with stories about themselves and about the world and about humanity and about their families and all that kind of stuff. And we can change those stories in mm -hmm. ways that empower people and help them to be happier and help them to be kinder in the world. That's what I'm in this for. Yeah. And so imagination becomes, you know, the primary tool, the, the, the cloth that you lay down before setting out anything for a, a focus or an altar. Imagination is the, the foundation. I like that. It even rhymes. <laughs> yeah. And again, just to really, really be very clear on this, neither of us are being down on the fantasy genre or I mean, we're both huge fans and you mm -hmm. know, D, D nerds and all of that stuff. But we're we're talking about the the ways that, you know, what's the the purpose of each and and where the where we can use imagination in a really constructive way and where it's maybe more harmful, right? Right. Or just where we may be stuck. Yeah. And, you know, people do get stuck. That's And cultures get stuck. I think it's a lot easier for a culture that's based in a holy text to get stuck than it is for kind of a fluid subculture like uh, paganism mm -hmm. is to get stuck. But there's nothing shameful about that, except that if you become aware of it, then you can start to evolve again. Yeah. And I think that, you know, moving away from the good old days, uh, lineage of ancient ways, kind of model and, and sort of renaissance sort of aesthetic of paganism we'll do a couple of things that would be good for the pagan community. One of them is that I think it would make it less of a challenge to bridge the gap to other people that are not pagans mm -hmm. because it won't seem quite so fantasied, right? It, right. It, it won't seem uh, quite so frivolous in that way. Right. Well, and, and also more welcoming to the people who don't particularly connect with that aesthetic. Right. 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 Where the, the ideas are interesting, but the aesthetic is, is just difficult to get past. Yes. Right. For sure. So that's a good thing. And then the other way that I think that it can really benefit the pagan community is that it, it enables, it, it would create kind of a vacuum that would enable new stuff to arise. Mm -hmm. There. And, and I think that some of this is happening because, you know, the, the, the 60s and 70s generation of pagans is leaving us. Mm -hmm. most, of the, most of them came to it in adulthood. And so by now they're, they're getting elderly. Mm -hmm. And there's enough conversation and enough pagan thought happening now that I think that people are starting to reconsider some of those good old days 
unbroken lineage kind of model. Certainly with Ronald Hutton's book, The Triumph of the Moon, he pretty well documented that modern paganism was a modern creation. Mm-hmm. I think it would be a wonderful thing for modern paganism to stand up and say, yes, we're a modern creation. We're informed by modern values, which means we don't have a holy book that's full of slavery and abuse and misogyny. Mm-hmm. We, we stand for for the good stuff that humans have learned about how the dignity of the individual and the ecosystem. And we think that those are of value and that that's good enough. Yeah. And we don't need some, some distant past authority to make it valid. Right. Right. As, as Tim mentioned said, I don't believe that just because I ideas are tenacious that they're worthy. Mm. Yeah. So going back to talking about rituals again, one thing that can be helpful when you're planning a ritual is to write out the story, right? You know, or, or at least speak it out loud. We're going to do this and this and this and this and this, and the result is going to be that. Because what that does is it creates expectation in people's minds. In mm-hmm. your own mind, if you're working alone or in the, the group's mind, oh, okay, well, that's what's going to happen. And then it's going to result in that cool, magical new thing that's going to transform us. <laughs> Great. Sign yep. me up. I'm, I'm, you, I'm here you for it. can follow that path and follow that. And there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is a, I mean, like so many things that we talk about on this podcast, it takes a little bit of awareness. It takes some reflection and just paying attention to how things work, how you work, how you respond and, and going from there and going, okay, well, how do I get, how do I make this work for me? What's mm-hmm. the story that I want? Right. What's the story that I want to live? What's the story that I can tell? And imagination is, that's what connects the pieces. Yes. Yes. So I think, I don't know, I could go on and on, but I, <laughs> I think I think we should stop here. I think this um, is a wonderful place. I think to, it's a good place to stop. Just, yep. And to it, just invite some dreams for the future, right? Right. And this is, as you say, a great time of year to be doing that, mm-hmm. you know, as as spring either, you know, is happening with the light, but not with the weather, or, or maybe it is happening, starting to happen as it is where I live, then, you know, imagine a little, imagine, who do I want to be? What's, what's my highest vision for myself? Yeah. And some of that can be circumstantial, like, you know, what kind of work I want to be doing, or, you know, whatever that is. But some of it is, well, what kind of person do I want to be? Yeah. You know, am I impatient? Well, can I work on that? Am I irritable? Can I work on that? Yeah. Um, And that's ultimately the stuff that you really do have control over. Yes. Right. The what, you know, what job you have or what kind of world you want to live in. Those are all wonderful things. But ultimately, you don't actually have control over that. 
right? right? But you do have control over what kind of person you're going to be and how you're going to respond when certain types of things happen. Right. Yeah. Not to say that activism isn't important. Right. Exactly. You can definitely. You can definitely advocate and work to bring about improvements to the world that we live in. And it's essential that as many of us as possible do that. Yes. So not not to say that your highest vision of yourself should trump your vision for the world, but but you aren't a personal failure if you aren't the chosen one from the stories that saves the world from global warming and and all of that. You can right. you can be part of that solution, but don't but don't beat yourself up that like that our that real life doesn't work the same way fantasy novels work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, one of the most pernicious things I think about the children's stories that we tell people is, and they lived happily ever after. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a terrible thing to tell people because the expectation then is, okay, you get married and then you lived happily ever after until you have a knockdown drag out fight (laughs) over something super trivial that neither one of you is willing to get off of until a day later when you finally <laughs> got all the cortisol out of your system and you're ready to start actually having a conversation. This is the way the world really works. Oh, yes. Oh, and the poor, yeah. And when and when you've been raised on those stories and think that that's how it works, then you suddenly, well, is this not true love? Right. Is this, yeah, this is not meant to be? Well, no, don't worry. Relationships take work. Yes, Anyways, they do. Yeah. Now we're going on a tangent. We are. <laughs> yes. That that's a well maybe that'll be something to talk about as we get closer to uh Valentine's. Ah, that's, that's right? a good idea. Yeah. Although we next actually week, have yeah. next week we have Sarah Lindsay coming. We're going to do an interview with the YouTuber known as the the Skeptical Witch. And if you haven't seen her channel, I really encourage you to take a look at some of her stuff. She's a PhD candidate in religious studies, and she's very, very interesting to talk with and listen to. So we're going to be doing that. So excited. I am too. It's going to be great. So um, in the meantime, we hope you all have a wonderful week. Enjoy the season and uh, be sure to contact us um, at the email address. We always tell you the wonder podcast cues at gmail.com. If you have comments or suggested topics or any of that. Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks, everyone.